Welcome to The Antique Show. We talk antiques, collectibles and art and all the news and events from Australia and around the globe. Here's your host, Jason Harris. Oh, thank you, voiceover guy as normal. Magnificence in your voice, your projection. It could melt butter. And welcome to episode six of The Antique Show, broadcasting from The Antique Show studios at the Antique Education Headquarters at Grange. And joining me in studio, our producer and man behind the glass, Mark. Now, this week's show, we discover the amazing life of Australian artist Frederick McCubbin. We dive deep into part two of the cycles and trends of antiques and collectibles, We have a look at weird stuff people collect, including my favourite, belly button fluff. Yes, you heard me correct. Belly button fluff is a collectible, along with many other things. But surprisingly, that is not the weirdest thing there. And finally, we look at auction results from last week's sale with What Stuff's Worth. Now, you might remember in episode four, for those who listened, I asked you a question. I proposed a question for you, and that is, what does happiness mean? And I set you a task of writing down or envisaging, depends on how you do things, what does happiness mean to you? What does happiness look like to you? Now, hold on to that thought for those who have done that. For those who haven't, have a think about that now, because in my closing comments, I want to explore that a little bit further. What has it got to do with antiques? Well, in some ways, Antiques bring happiness to people. Collecting brings happiness to people. And so my exploration on self-development also is looking at what other things bring happiness and exploring what does happiness actually mean to us. If we can't identify what it means, then the chances are we're never going to be truly happy. And then if we do know what makes us truly happy, how do we transform ourselves to be happier? Because at the end of the day, we're only here for a short amount of time. We've only got one chance of being happy, so why not grab hold of that? Anyway, nothing to do specifically with antiques. It's just a personal uh, mission, goal that I'm on, and it's something I'd like to share as we go forward over the next episode of The Antique Show. Enough about happiness, and let's have a look at the news. The Auction and Antique News, brought to you by The Antique Show. Oh, there's so much happening in news and events from across the world in antiques and auctions. Here are the highlights, starting in local news. Bob Hawke's treasure trove of artworks, diplomatic gifts, political mementos and designer furniture is set to go under the hammer later this month in a home contents clearance sale expected to total more than $250,000. Notable pieces include artworks by great Australian artists Tom McCauley, Hugh Sorey and Leanne Wanjadari, as well as designer furniture sets by Italian designers Paolo Piva and Antonio Cittaro. The 300-lot auction also includes more personal items such as the conductor's baton Hawk used a decade ago when conducting the Hallelujah Chorus from Handel's Messiah at the Sydney Opera House. The most expensive lot in the work is by Yuan McLeod, lone figure in the gully, which we expect to sell between $14,000 and $18,000. The auction will be held at Shapiro's on Tuesday, the 27th of August. And moving across the Tasman, at one of New Zealand's art auctions, more than $3 million was spent on bids coming in from as far as Singapore and Hong Kong. 
On the market were paintings by Wu Yangzong, a artist who got in trouble with the Chinese authorities during the Mao Zedong Cultural Revolution, and works by Kiwi artists such as Charles F. Goldie, Ralph Hortari, Pat Hanley, Don Binney and Dick Frizzle. After bids from Hong Kong and Singapore, a statement from the centre said Wu's painting sold for $470,000 to an Auckland-based buyer. The auction took place at the International Arts Centre in Auckland, a suburb in Parnell. And to international news, three private collections boosted the sale entitled Design, Decorative Arts 1860 to the Present Day, held at Rosebury's of West Nord on June 25th. A circa 1980 not 1880, but 1980 version of Charles and Ray Eames' classic 670 Lounger and 671 Ottoman, my personal favourite, went above estimate at £2,300, while Alvar Alto's Bowfront Birch Plywood Cabinet Model A803, designed by Finmar, circa 1935, went from mid-estimate of £5,000. A low table by Belgium designer Jules Wobbs, pitched at two to four thousand pounds, was one of the surprises when it sold for six thousand five hundred pounds. Eighty percent of the three hundred and ten lots got away. The top seller was this magnificent cabinet by Carlo Bugatti that was knocked down for eleven thousand pounds. Onto the books, Winnie the Pooh. A signed first edition was sold at an online auction held by Sotheby's that ran between July the 1st and the 9th. The highlights of this was an exceptionally well-preserved set of When We Were Very Young, published in 1924, and a first edition of what is now collectively known as the Winnie the Pooh books were sold at the online auction. They were both signed, or all signed, by A.A. Milne and Ernest Shepherd, and they were set was sold for £24,000. Now, going to the ivory debate, and I mentioned this in some of my newsletters, and we're just completing a large article now, which will be in two parts about the ivory debate. Just a quick catch up for those who aren't aware of this. The government in the UK has passed or developed and passed a bill which forbids the trade in elephant ivory. There's some huge ramifications, aside from my personal belief that's a really cool thing to do, the ramifications on the other side of it, there are pieces of art like bronze figures and inros and netskis, which are completely now decimated as a result of this. And so it does have an impact on the art side of things, whilst it will hopefully uh, really curb the illegal hunting of ivory or poaching of ivory. So under the forthcoming UK ivory legislation, there'll be no legitimate market for bronze and ivory art deco figures that are made less than 100 years ago and comprising more than 10% elephant ivory. The much coveted works fail to qualify for any of the proposed exceptions. Now, what this basically means is that items such as Ferdinand's Priest's The Spring Awakening, uh, which sold for £21,000 at Bonhams in 2016 and then sold for another £41,000 in New York in 2011, will no longer be able to be sold within England. So these are works of art in their own right. I agree with it personally, absolutely, but there needs to be a way of preserving the art form itself. Okay, in some of my favourite news articles now, a Thai silver tea kettle has sold for £13,500 in Leicestershire. The parcel gilt and enamel octagonal tea kettle, probably dated from 1850s, 1860s, came for sale at Sutton Hill Farm Country Auctions at Broughton Astley on July the 19th from a London estate. The Thai silver is often overshadowed by better-known genres of silver from other parts of Asia. Exceptional examples of Thai silver smithing, such as items 
as these were typically commissioned by members of the extended Siamese royal family, and some of those made it to the West were presented as diplomatic gifts. And finally, another Chinese vase awakens as a sleeper at a Felixstowe auction. There was high drama at a small Suffolk Saar room at, of Diamond Hills when a Chinese vase on hardwood stand, which was estimated from just 100 to 150 pounds, sold for 200,000 pounds, which is just over $350,000 Aussie. Now, the vase was thought to have dated from the Yongzheng period of the Qing dynasty. It was in good condition, save a small hairline crack to the neck and a firing crack to the base, but overall was decorated with flowering prunus branches at the time of manufacture. The vase came in from a local gentleman who apparently had previously belonged to his auntie who spent many years in the Far East. Imagine that, 100 to 150 pounds and ends up selling for 200,000 pounds. Amazing. That is the news locally and internationally for this week. Word of the week. Albumen. A-L-B-U-M-E-N, albumen. Subtly toned photographs popular in the 1800s that were made by adhering photographic chemicals to paper with egg whites, hence the name. I invite you to visit Learn Antiques, where you can read, watch, learn and grow. www.learnantiques.com.au There's articles, news, video and podcasts, and it's all for free at Learn Antiques. www.learnantiques.com.au Discover to find unexpectedly. Who remembers the 1982 Kit Kat ad? The one featuring an 1880s couple in an Australian bushland setting. And it goes from a still, and then all of a sudden the figures move. The lady's laying down in front of a tree holding a baby. The gentleman at the back, the husband, is reaching into a creek. So that was based on Frederick McCubbins on the Wallaby Track, painted in 1896. Now, Frederick McCubbin, in his own very formal painting style, captured some of the most brilliant bushland Australian settings in art that you will ever see. He had a style that was highly trained, highly figurative, and almost photorealistic in a lot of ways. And he's also gone on to be one of the highest priced Australian artists at auction. So let's discover more about Frederick McCubbin. So he was born in 1855 with eight brothers and sisters. His family were Scottish immigrants and they came over to Melbourne in 1852. Now his first job was as a lawyer at the Eldon Chambers, but he was pretty well left to his own devices and he entertained himself by creating theatres out of paper. Now, it's safe to say that his law career came to an end shortly after. His father, who was a frustrated baker, not frustrated at baking, but certainly frustrated with Frederick at the time, then apprenticed him to Stevenson Elliot as a wheelwright and a coach and herald painter. He'd always been attracted to figure drawing, and on a whim, Frederick signed up for evening classes at the Trades Hall School of Design in Ligon Street in Carlton. 
He attended these for three years from 1867. Frederick then enrolled in the National Gallery of Victoria's School of Design, and he studied under Eugene von Gerard and George Follingsby. McCubbin and a group of fellow students established a life drawing class held on Saturday afternoons. However, Frederick's teacher at the time was strongly opposed to this, and his students, which included Tom Roberts and Charles Richardson, were threatened with dismissal. But on appeal, they were allowed to remain. Frederick then put his artist, artistic ambitions on hold after his father died from a fall after an epileptic seizure and had to assist in running the family's bakery business. Meanwhile, his friends and fellow students Tom Roberts, Edgar McKennell and Charles Richardson all left to work in London. And it was a very unhappy period in McCubbin's life, only salvaged by a decision to commence life classes twice a week. Now, McCubbin managed to return to full-time studies in 1878 at the Victorian Academy of Arts. In 1880, he sold his first painting, View Near Fisherman's Bend. He won his first award in 1882, where he won a silver medal for figure drawing and was elected as an associate of the Academy. Then in 1883, he was awarded first prize and £30 for best studies in colour and drawing in the National Gallery's first student exhibition. Then the following year, he was awarded second prize for Home Again, which is now in the NGV after it was dis discovered more than 100 years to be owned by the Bickley family, who were also bakers at the time. Then in 1879, McCubbin painted An Old Politician, which exhibited and sold to a collector and stored in a private vault and not seen again for 137 years and was only unveiled in 2016 by McCubbin's grandson to help raise funds for the restoration of the Victorian Arts Society building. Now, oddly enough in timing, that same painting, The Old Politician or An Old Politician, is now up for auction at Sotheby's on August the 27th. It's lot number 31 and has an estimate of 80 to $100,000. Going back to McCubbin, in 1885, McCubbin, Tom Roberts, Arthur Streeton and Charles Condor, have a look at the names, the grandfathers of art or Australian art, founded the Heidelberg School of Australian Impressionism and sought to encourage emigrating artists to identify with their new culture by encouraging Australian Impressionism. Most of the artwork created under this umbrella were of Yarra and Gippsland regions. Soon after, McCubbin was appointed Drawing Master at the School of Design, replacing his former teacher. Later that year, he split with the Victorian Art Academy, along with Tom Robertson, John Ford Patterson, to form the Australian Arts Association, which was then integrated with the Academy to become the Victorian Artists Society in 1888. Frederick was appointed president in 1903 to 1904 and again in 1909. In 1891, McCubbin was then appointed interim director of the NGV until Lindsay Bernard Hall took up the position permanently. Feeding Time, which he painted in 1893, was his first piece to be purchased by the NGV, which they did in 1894. Frederick's work Bush Idol, which was painted in 1893, was auctioned by Christie's for the record price of $2,100,000, and that was in August in 1998. Now, various other galleries, including the Western Australian and New South Wales galleries, as well as the Art Gallery of South Australia, began buying McCubbin's works, with a public subscription allowing the Geelong Art Gallery to acquire a bush burial in 1900. Now, one of Frederick's examples of the genre, Gathering Mistletoe, painted 1886, was auctioned for $550,000 in 1993. 
Frederick's sister Mary Anne, or Dolly as she was affectionately known, was the model for this piece and its companion work Lost, which was painted in 1886. Now going back to McCubbin's history, in May 1907 McCubbin sailed for England. There his brother James, who lost his life on the Lithuania, and Tom Roberts escorted him to many London galleries, but he was especially impressed with Turner's works at the Tate Gallery in London. He also visited France, where he was exposed to French Impressionists. Frederick's last major work, Yarra River from Kensington Road, South Yarra, painted in 1917, was painted from the view from his veranda and sold for $800,000 in May 2005. Other than his sojourn to Europe, he had not taken leave for more than 30 years at the NGV. However, in 1916, Frederick was granted six months absence from his duties due to his worsening health. Unfortunately, he suffered from asthma and after a spell of pneumonia, he died from heart failure at home on December 1917, aged 62. A tribute to Frederick McCubbin, who's one of the grandfathers of not just Australian Impressionism, but also Australian art. And if you're ever going by the NGV, the Art Gallery South Australia, the New South Wales Gallery, or even the Geelong Gallery, stop by, have a look for McCubbin's work. Stand there for five or ten minutes and take in the beauty that he captured of Australian bush life in the late 19th century. Hopefully you'll find it amazing. That was Discover with Frederick McCubbin. It might be wild, it might be crazy, it might also be obscure, but it's definitely the weird. The weird stuff people collect. And I was trolling through, trolling through, trolling, that's a really bad way of uh, opening it up, isn't it? I was looking through the website and I came across a site that had a list of 43 weird things people collect. And I thought I'd just go through those rather than explore just one, just to really show you some of the things that are out there that people actually collect. And a lot of them were surprises for me. So at the 43rd on the list were prepared food items. So these are, and this is really big in Japan apparently, you can go to a restaurant or and you have a glass cabinet and there'll be the items that are already pre-prepared. They're actually all in plastic. Anyway, Japanese Aikido Obata is the world record holder for the largest collection of prepared food-related items, and she has 8,083 individual pieces. Moving over to surfboards, Donald Detaloff has a property in, in Hawaii that shows off his collection of 647 different surfboards. A lady by the name of Jackie Millie, has a teddy bear collection of 7,106 unique teddy bears. All right, into the really weird napkins. Martina Schellenberg from Germany owns the largest collection of napkins. 125,866 different napkins. Uh, it's borderline obsessive. And we go over to Russia where a young man who obviously spends a lot of time by himself, Grigory Feature or Fleetcher from Russia, is the Guinness World Record holder for having the world's largest collection of toothbrushes, which numbers 1,320. And into the more bizarre Do Not Disturb Hotel signs, Jean-Francois Vanetti's collection of Do Not Disturb Hotel signs has grown to 11,111, which he collected from different hotels across the globe. And erasers, rubbers, 
Petra Engel owns 19,571 erasers, all collected from 100 different countries. Talking clocks. I had one of these as a kid. Mine was the Bugs Bunny clock. And the largest collection belongs to Mark McKinley of Ohio, and he owns 954 of them. And super soakers, you know, the great things that you buy kids for summer. And a guy by the name of Chris Reeds owns 240 of the super soakers and all unique. Dice, the fluffy dice. Kevin Cook has the world record collection of dice. And he has 51,000 unique items. Milk bottles. A former milkman, Paul Luke, 33 years old, has been collecting milk bottles since he was nine. And he has over 10,000 different milk bottles. Miniature chairs. And I didn't even know this was a collectible, but apparently it is. Barbara Hartsfield collects miniature chairs and has a world record breaking 3,000 pieces and has been collecting for over 10 years. And finally... In the wrap-up of weird stuff people collect, and there's a lot more, we're going to continue on these over the next three episodes, but Malin Fritzel has been collecting paper dolls since the 60s, and her collection has grown to 4,720 dolls. So there are 12 of the weird collectibles from across the world. But what it shows me is if you can show me something, there'll be someone out there in the world that would collect it. Anyway, keep on collecting I'd love to hear from you. So you can contact me at theantiqueshow at gmail.com or jason at scamalauctions.com.au. Tell me what you collect and we'll get you into weird stuff people collect. Do you know Scammels are one of the largest and most dynamic auction rooms in Australia, selling over 55,000 lots every year? And this week we've launched our catalogues for our weekly estate sale, which is on Monday the 19th of August, starting at 9am. We've also have our showcase auction of antiques, sterling silver and works of art, and that's the evening of Monday the 26th of August, and the great collector's auction of man cave collectibles, motorcycles, open wheel race cars, oil bottles, rare enamel signs and collectibles, and that's the morning of Saturday the 31st of August. We're also accepting entries for our forthcoming fine and contemporary art auctions and our mid-century modern sale. And all of these catalogues and auctions can be found online at scammels.com.au. And you know Scammels also offer a free, no obligation appraisal. So if you have a piece of art, antique, silver or jewellery you'd like appraised, please give our office a call on 83620404, that's 83620404, or contact us online at scammels.com.au. Scammels, another great find. Now for those who listened in on last episode, I started part one of Trends, Fashions and Cycles, and we looked at how the early adopters, the trendsetters, they led the way. And we looked at why they led the way and what happens when they leave and go on to something else and we've got so everyone else keeps following and then all of a sudden it changes and the impact of the retail line also getting involved. Now this episode we're going to explore what effect original price, rarity and fad has on changing trends and cycles. But before we do, I get asked often what is next to sell well? What's going to be the next fashion, the next trend, the next furniture that's going to come into our homes. And in short, you know, it is hard to tell. I don't have a crystal ball, 
But let's look at this pragmatically. Up until now, we've rehashed old cycles, meaning that the retro furniture that is now selling so hot had its time originally back in the 60s and 70s. And typically those who are old enough to have, have bought these new, let's say my parents, aren't buying these now. It's either my generation or the generation next in line. And when we look at furniture styles in Australia, we have not had to repeat a trend or cycle for the third time. So we've had the original one, and then we've had a rehash of that. But we haven't had to go and revisit for the third time. However, I can't say it's going to be the same moving forward. We've covered every trend from colonial furniture through to the 70s. Now, if you think about the history of Australia, we have, compared to the rest of the modern world, a very short history for white Australia, we'll call it. So 1788. And we've covered every trend, every cycle from 1788 through to the 1970s. Now, the 80s stuff is, well, apart from being mostly appalling, is too recent for us to go back to. So at best guess, I look that we are going to go to formal country furniture. So I remember the time when we were selling meat safes, large country tables, miners' couches. I feel we're going to head back into that realm. So not the high Victorian antiques of sideboards and formal dining, but the more relaxed golden pine tones of those kitchen tables and sideboards, along with, and this is the, the asterisk next to it, along with petite pieces of late Victorian furniture. So the revolving bookcases, the wine tables. So I feel like it's almost a transition period. Now that also gets me thinking, and the question I raise is, our current cycle's around 10 to 15 years long, given that we're now revisiting a trend or a cycle for the third time. So, sorry, revisited for the second time, but we're now in the third iteration. Will the cycles turn around a lot quicker? All right, anyway, it's a question to ponder. On to rarity, price, and fad. Let's take the easy one first, fad. So I bring to the table the Coles Little Shoppers and the Woolies Oshies. If you don't know what they are, look them up. They are essentially what our two large supermarket chains are unleashing upon us, willingly or unwillingly. Anyway, they're a classic example of a fad. They're a contrived collectible. And it'll be short-lived as punters realise they have no intrinsic value. Don't get me wrong, the idea is marketing genius. And I hope for the collectible industry, in my industry in auctions, that it starts some young ones into serious collecting. But why is it a fad? Firstly, as I said, it's contrived to purely get shoppers to stay or even to switch loyalties. Then they build into this, the marketers try to gamify it by building in limited editions. However, unlike other collectibles in the same genre, like Pokemon cards or Magic, the card game, there is no impetus to continue to collect. Both Pokemon and Magic are games in themselves and have a huge following across the world. And some of the rarest cards are worth tens of thousands of dollars. I think even one of the Pokemon cards is around about $90,000. But the difference is that people still use these to play a game, whether it's online or whether it's face-to-face. -face. I suppose the difference, though, is that fad collectibles get forgotten about very quickly. I mean, who still collects and trades the first little shoppers? I mean, round two will certainly see that any life that might have been there is soon extinguished. So from this, we can see that collectible needs to have an enduring interest, not just be a passing fad. But a passing fad is not the only predictor. Rarity lends its weight to an enduring collectible, or certainly a trend. Rarity is not only defined by how many originally came out, 
but how many are left now? So let's think about early oil bottles. So you go down to a service station, someone would rip out there, fill your car with oil, and you'd be on your way. The rare Neptune and Golden Fleece would have been made in their thousands and, and hardly rare at the time. However, they were disposable. They were often broken, they were retired to be thrown away once new brands or oil type was released. But now they are collectible and we see prices spike for the truly rare versions. And we've got one coming up at the moment, which is one of the rarest oil bottles that we expect to sell for about $4,000. Now the same can be said for many other collectibles like yo-yos, movie posters, comics, books, badges and toys. Of course, the same holds true if only a limited number were made or produced early on. So for example, many first edition books are now worth thousands or tens of thousands of dollars as the editor or the production company only made a limited run the first time round. So for example, J.K. Rowling's first Harry Potter book had an initial run of 500 copies and 300 of those were, went out to libraries. These first editions are now worth in excess of $80,000 each and one sold at auction recently for $130,000. So let's, that's the rarity side of it. So how many were originally made and how many are left now? Now the final factor is original price and sometimes original price and limited numbers or rarity go hand in hand. Currently the most expensive car to sell is the 1963 Ferrari 250 GTO, which last sold for seventy million dollars US. That's right, 70 million dollars US. Now there are only 36 of these ever released and the buyers were handpicked by Enzo Ferrari. It's called the Elite GTO Club. So here we have two factors working together and that is original price and rarity. Now watches are similar collectible where they are affected by the original price. I found a copy of a Rolex Oyster ad online and it was in a 1927 copy of the Daily Mail newspaper, and it showed three different versions of the same Rolex Oyster watch. It was a silver one, a 10 karat gold, and an 18 karat gold. Now the 18 karat gold one was valued or worth three times more than the silver one. Now that same watch is probably worth at least 10 or 15 times. So the original price can also affect the collectability of an item. So in summary, we've talked about how and why tastes and trends change, how rarity, original price, and enduring interest all affect whether an item is collectible, will be worth more now or later, or vice versa. It can also help to give us a clearer picture as to why and when prices might drop in the future, and maybe an insight into what else could be collectible. Let's face it, given the way other collectibles are going, it won't be long before mobile phones, portable tape and CD players will hit the mainstream collector's market. But I am certain of one thing though, there is a collector out there for everything. Prepare yourself. Okay, let's go. And now in What Stuff's Worth, this is auction 375, Scammels held on Monday the 12th of August, lot number 146. We've got a pair of TH Brown Blackwood TV chairs, beautiful frames in this, lovely grey woolen fabric. They sold for $950 for the pair. Lot number 52, a French Berger. This sold for $380, lovely petite framed chair. The wings on the chair came down and followed all the way through the arms. Beautiful piece there in a sort of a salmon pinky upholstery, $380. A table, 
Victorian cedar, two slab tops, a nice wide slab tops, the central drawer to the apron, ex-robe railway station, really nice turn legs, Victorian, around about 1870s, 1880s, sold for $550. Lot number 19 is a dining suite. The reason I mention this, it's Victorian, it's oval top, and it's a really poor combination up until quite recently. So years ago, we are getting $100 for these. Now, this one sold for $380. It is an oval top on a pedestal base with a set of six balloon back chairs. It's still really modestly priced at $380, but we're starting to see that the prices come back for this style of furniture. And driveway gates, lot number 335, an extremely impressive pair of 19th century iron gates, measuring just over three meters wide, sold for $2,600. And moving into some of the smaller items, lot number 1059 is a beautiful charm bracelet, 18 karat gold links with 14 karat and 18 karat gold charms, sold for $1,700. This is a bit of a tongue-in-cheek one. It's lovely. It's a collage. So it's a beautiful picture made with cigar bands and packaging. That's right, cigar bands and packaging. Would have taken an enormous amount of time. Sold for $150. Lot number 1161, a Barbara Hanrahan lino cut entitled Acrobat. And that sold for $700. Fabulous piece. And have a look at her details online, fabulous Australian female artist, Barbara Hanrahan. Lot number 1209, 1209, Georgian glassware. These are really, really nice. A collection of rummers and wine glasses from the 18th and very early 19th century. They sold for $440. Lot number 1220, a centerpiece. What's really nice about this, it's like a uranium, not like, it is a uranium glass stalk. It's just the centerpiece that sits on a float bowl, and that's sold for $200. Now, if you want a trick with uranium glass, get yourself a black light and run it over the green glass you might have at home. If it's uh, in a darkened room, if it comes up this really bright iridescent color, that's called uranium glass. More of that online at Learn Antiques. Racing Mirror, HDT, Holden Dealer Racing Team, Commodore Mirror, sold for $150. And finally, lot number 1348, Railway Staffs. These are metal rods, essentially, that are put into a device that stops a train coming onto a track whilst people are working on it. And they are highly, highly collectible. And there are a set of four of these, sold for $480. And that is what stuff is worth for this week. And just remember, you can go online at scammels.com.au, look up our catalogues, past auctions to see all the results from every auction we've run. And that almost brings episode six of the Antique Show to a close. And I thank you for joining me as ever. If you have a friend, a loved one, a family member that you think might benefit from listening to the Antique Show, please share it with them. I want to get as many people involved in this as possible. Spread the love, spread the news, spread the energy about antiques, art, collectibles, and auctions. Now, in closing, at the start of the this episode, I asked you about what happiness means to you. And back in episode four, I presented you with a challenge on picturing your happiness. Either write it down, what does happiness mean, or have a picture in your mind about what happiness means. So my challenge for you now moving forward is, and this is the transformation piece, 
What three things can you do now that progresses you closer to your happiness picture or your happiness statement? Three things. A lot of the time I hear people say, if only, oh, if only I had a million dollars, if only I was younger, if only I was smarter, if only I was taller, if only I was shorter, if only I was whatever it might be. These are things that we can't necessarily change about ourselves, but there's so many other things that we can. So pick three things now that you can do to transform yourself to get you closer to that happiness picture. Why is this? Because if we start on that path, we've got a much better chance of getting closer to it. A wise man once said to me, if we don't know where we're going, chances are we'll never get there. He'll know who that is. Anyway, that is it for episode six of The Antique Show. No episode next week. Traveling over to Bangkok. Won't have time, unfortunately, to produce the show. We'll have a bumper one the following week because it takes around about eight hours to put this together. As always, I appreciate you listening. And don't forget, you can check out our auctions coming for that's for scammel auctions at scammels.com.au. We can also go to our sister site, Learn Antiques. All the articles on there, all the video, all the news are all free for you. We'll never charge for it. It's all there. It's a fabulous tool to do some light reading, do some research. And that is learnantiques.com.au. Have a great weekend. Enjoy your Sunday. And we'll see you back in two weeks' time. That's The Antique Show brought to you by Scammel Auctions and is produced by Antique Education Proprietary Limited and features on learnantiques.com and the podcast Podbean for The Antique Show. Copyright 2019.